Hello, welcome back to Witchfix. I'm Pixie Moon Sparkle Farts, and to find out why I'm calling myself this, stay tuned for the rest of the episode. Today I'm looking at an enchanted grimoire, Goth Magic, magic with a K, by Brenda Knight, also with a K, who um, was also the writer of the Good Witch Bree series, and I reviewed one of those books and said that I wanted to maybe check out one of her books that's actually a book that you would read because the witch brie book as i said was sort of less than 100 pages and was more a coffee table or aesthetic book than an actual book book full of words that you would read so i picked this up on ebay as usual it was about three pounds so it didn't exactly break the bank and you can get used copies from amazon as well or new copies for not huge amounts of money so it's got that going on in its favor i had to put off doing this review for a while because there were actually quite a lot of things in this book that I had to research and try and fact check because um, I, I don't really know a lot about the goth community. Uh, I'm not goth myself but I, I got this book because there are some aspects of goth fashion and goth lifestyle that do appeal to me and I do follow some goth YouTubers as well who um, I find quite interesting. So people like Toxic Tears and Black Friday and um, I genuinely quite like the aesthetic. I like quite a lot of spooky black things and I subscribe to some subscription boxes that provide me with those and I do quite like it kind of feeds into like the witch aesthetic part of it but I wouldn't call myself a goth and I definitely don't look like a goth because I just wear old t-shirts most of the time. I'm not glamorous enough to be a goth but I had to do a lot of research into some of the claims, some of the ideas in this book, because unlike with books just about Wicca, I didn't really have a background in having read other things about being a goth and experiencing that for myself. So I didn't have that store of knowledge to fact check it as I went through, if you like. Just to start with, the book is not, I would say it's quite a good length. It's like 250-ish pages. Um, a lot of the last sort of 20 pages are stockists, magazines, retail outlet shops and things that tell you where you can get various goth fashion items and you know goth inspirations. So I think that would be quite useful if you were maybe just interested in becoming a goth or interested in the sort of goth aesthetic and you wanted places where you could go to look at it. The book is copyrighted 2006 so I don't know how many of them are still current but I googled a few and they seem to still be running so that's good. A lot of the physical shops, I think all of the physical shop locations given are in America but there are online uh, places as well. The first thing I actually had to fact check was um, the introduction of the book because I was quite uh, confused because on the front cover of the book there is a goth you know black lipstick white face paint the the rest of it but then the opening lines are during the dark ages northern Europeans practiced a sort of primal paganism the goths were Germanic tribes the Visigoths Ostrogoths Vandals Lombards Burgundians and Franks hailing from the area we now know as Scandinavia and then the whole first paragraph is very much a history of those people and I was like wait a minute I didn't think that goths as in people who wear dms and have dyed black hair had literally anything to do with visigoths and the other sort of germanic goth tribes and I googled it quite quickly and by that I mean I went to the wikipedia page for the goth subculture 
And the first line of that is that the goth subculture is a music subculture that began in England during the 1980s. And that it's chiefly influenced by 19th century Gothic literature and Gothic horror films. So yeah, I guess things like Dracula, the whole sort of Gothic literary movement, um, that made sense to me. And I know that quite a lot of the fashion inspirations for it are either punk or Victorian and Edwardian fashions. Uh, so people tend to dress a little bit like characters from Dracula and various things like that. There isn't a mention of it anywhere being influenced by Visigoths. And I was kind of confused by that. I get kind of what the author's doing. Like there's these two ideas. There's like ideas that have a background in paganism and there's ideas that have a background in like the Gothic aesthetic. But I mean, just because those things have the word goth in both of them doesn't mean that they're necessarily connected. Um, she doesn't really say that goths nowadays are related really to those. She says... Fortunately, modern goths differ greatly from their axe-toting forebears, but both have much in common. A great romanticism, a love of the earth and her magic, as well as a deep tribalism and sense of adventure. So I get that. Uh, it just confused me a little bit because and throughout the book, she does refer back to these sort of Scandinavian, Norse um, and Celtic practices as being something embraced by goths, as in modern goths. And uh, I don't really get that, but I don't know. Not being a goth myself, I don't really understand how those things would be connected, but we shall see. I quite liked the beginning of the book. I, I read it quite quickly. Um, it's basically just an outline of the principles of Wicca, so the Rick and Reed, the Threefold Law. Um, and then there are some various other ideas about dark pagans, which are not necessarily like evil pagans, but pagans who embrace the darker side of magic. Um, everything to do with like the death and renewal aspects, uh, the moon, the nocturnal, things like that. And I was sort of thinking, oh, OK, here's where we get into what the book is actually going to be about. Then there's a section on heresy and the witch hunts. And I always find it weird when these are included in books about modern paganism, because, as I've said before, the witches who were executed back then weren't actually like our forebears in witchcraft necessarily. A lot of them were just people that people wanted to get rid of for various reasons and they blamed them for things going wrong and it was just this mass hysteria it's not because they were actually you know witches um another thing that was mentioned it's mentioned on page 12 and it's sort of the end of the burning times segment but um it says in may 2005 a young woman in england was dunked repeatedly in the river and nearly drowned because her family and neighbors believed she was practicing witchcraft so while we believe these dark times are over we must be vigilant we must never forget now i googled witch dunking england 2005 various combinations of, of keywords and that wasn't actually an attempt to fact check the book it was just because i was interested in the story and i thought okay so this is uh, a witch attack that occurred in my country and in the last sort of 20 years so i thought okay i need to know about what this is because i hadn't heard of it and i think i narrowed it down to one case that it could have been an article that i found from the guardian dated the 10th of may 2005 uh, and the child is only referred to as b but um there is uh, allegations that they were stuffed into a laundry bag and then threatened with being drowned versus them actually being dunked uh, and it does seem 
to be the case that is being referred to in the book. I definitely couldn't find any other news stories relating to another story in 2005 in May. And it seems that this is motivated not by um, a Wiccan practice, but by uh, beliefs growing out of African religion. And you do hear sort of things about, you know, which trials and which allegations and which murders are still being perpetrated in countries in Africa. So um, I don't think that Knight meant to be misleading in the book, but I do think that it's being sort of oversimplified. And instead of addressing you know, a problem culturally, which is obviously still a problem for young women uh, in African countries today. She hasn't really tackled that. and She's just kind of related it strictly back to the burning times, which is more of a European thing. And I feel it's, it's a little bit whitewashing, for, for lack of a better term, which I found a little bit strange. Something else that I had to fact check, um, I got to page 14. Um, as you can see, I was sort of turning over corners going like, I don't know that that's right. But you know, we'll see. Um, under the section Sacred Tools on page 14, um, Knight writes, self-proclaimed goth Marilyn Manson, for example, collects tools for his chosen home in New Orleans used by voodoo practitioners. Uh, I don't really know anything about Marilyn Manson. I get that he's kind of a goth, so I was just like, oh, OK, yeah, I believe that. But then it says, actor Nicolas Cage, who follows the teachings of Alistair Crowley, collects his writings, tarot cards and tools because they're imbued with the energy and magic of the founder of the Order Templar Orientalis, or OTO. Uh, so I was like, OK, Nicolas Cage, pretty mainstream actor. It should be easy for me to Google this and find references because I was like, oh, OK, I've seen quite a lot of Nicolas Cage's films. Quite a lot of them deal with like occult stuff, like famously the Wicker Man remake, which... I mean, wasn't a great film, but there you go. And there's sort of other occult elements in several other films. Um, so I Googled him and I Googled his name in conjunction with Crowley or with OTO or the Order of whatever. And uh, and I couldn't find anything at all. Um, nothing at all. Like not even on gossip websites. Uh, you know how people are usually like... If people are interested in, like, Kabbalah, it becomes, like, front page news for some reason. Um, and we all know about who's interested in Scientology. But there's just literally nothing about uh, Nicolas Cage um, being involved in occult side of things. The only quote vaguely to do with that that I could find was in the political and religious views section of his Wikipedia page when he was asked about a movie called Knowing that he was in, and he was asked if it was a religious-themed film or not, and the quote from him is, any of my personal belief or opinions runs the risk of impinging on your own relationship with the movie. I feel movies are best left enigmatic, left raising more questions than answers. I don't want to ever preach, so whatever you get from the movie is far more interesting than anything I could ever offer. Which isn't even a statement of, like, his religious beliefs. I mean, you could say that he's maybe being evasive, and maybe, like, trying to hide an involvement in the occult but I could literally find nothing about even him collecting the objects that Brenda Knight uh, says that he's interested in and there's no source given for that so I'd be interested to know where she found out about it because obviously in googling it I couldn't find anything. There's a lot of quite general wicket information about uh, so it lists the different kinds of tools, colour correspondences, essential oil correspondences, um, and I thought, you know, this is quite useful information for people to have in like a Wicca 101 book. It basically all seems correct, so that's pretty good. Then there's some stuff about creating a gothic altar and 
various things that you could put on it like a coffin shaped box or a sarcophagus and you know various other like goth decor there are little sections throughout the book in little highlighted boxes called goth is in the details and it gives some ideas of sort of gothic touches you could do to things like um goth altar flowers for example is a list is provided on 20 oh, on page 23 uh, gothic garden plant suggestions on page 24 um and then there are some guides for how to make incense how to consecrate ritual tools there's some stuff about the elements of air and uh, earth and fire and water so that's pretty self-explanatory but basic wicker stuff uh, then chapter four outlines the winter soul uh, and basically describes the winter soul as being a sort of mysterious and forbidden romantic side of the soul that deals with things that are to do with winter the death the dying off pain and all sorts of things that sort of to do with like gothic literature and uh, gothic ideas uh, she gives some examples on page 37 think of the short-lived but never to be forgotten sci-fi television show lex whose star kai was actually dead but somehow more beautiful brilliant capable and alive than anyone else on the show and think of mary shelley's dr frankenstein and his monstrous creation trudging over the frozen plains of the arctic in the dramatic and oh so tragic tale of life death love and pain in the first gothic novel ever written these are all dreams, creations and expressions of the winter soul from Poe to Susie Sue, I think is how you say that, to the lone witch on the moonlit hill. These are incredibly imaginative beings who care to go it alone, dare to take risks and explore a lonesome path to gain the great witches of their own soul at the end of the journey. And then it gives, um, there's some stuff to do with making a winter altar and consecrating it, uh, provides some gothic guided meditation. Um, there's some various things after that about calling on angels and angel invocation i'm not into angels i don't really believe in angels so um that was kind of pointless for me to read and i wasn't particularly interested in it but i mean if you are interested in angels then it, it is a probably a good section for you and it goes on to say about you know angels being represented in various different cultures as well so i suppose that might be something that if you were coming to wicker from one of those cultures or one of those religions that involved angels it might make you feel a bit more comfortable to invoke something you're familiar with there's also a little bit of lore about vampires psychic vampires uh, and how to protect yourself from same and when i say a little bit i mean two pages uh, and then it goes into some more rituals and things and then we get into uh, the section which is called goth rocks and heavy metal magical jewelry and it tells you basically what to wear wear on your body for different magical goals necklaces pendants and chokers um i thought this was a bit odd because um she says perhaps you want to be a better communicator or to sing chant or simply express yourself more freely to do any of these things you will need a clear throat chakra a blocked throat chakra can result in your feelings and ideas being blocked so a necklace or choker can open this center and bring more possibility into your life so I mean, I get the whole throat chakra thing uh, and clearing out old energy and the throat being where you want to focus if you want to be more eloquent, if you want to express yourself better. But the idea of a choker being that kind of goes against my idea of, of, of choker because it's called, a, it's literally called a choker, guys. Uh, and, you know, the idea of it is it is quite restrictive and it's binding around your throat. And I would tend to think of that as more of a silencing thing um but obviously that that goes into 
however you feel about wearing one and and what they mean to you so that might all make perfect sense to you it just didn't really to me it was quite confusing so so far these have all been quite nitpicky things about you know me personally and what I've been able to find out online uh, there are some quite interesting things after in the jewellery section about talismans and then it gives like a history of different stones um sort of amethyst calcite bloodstone uh, and what they can be used for and various myths associated with them these do kind of jump around a bit there's stuff about ancient greece there's stuff about uh, egyptian law christian medieval law um and it kind of darts back and forwards like they've gone to the wikipedia page and gone like okay what folklore is associated with the stone from any culture and i was starting to get a bit confused because i thought we were more into the sort of visigoth kind of stuff and then it's like ancient egypt and um medieval christian and all this other stuff uh so it kind of began to feel like one of those books where it's just going to pull from everything and it doesn't really matter about your personal tradition or your like pantheon or who you want to work with um which i guess is fair because i mean these stones occur all over the world so of course everyone has different lore about them but it was still a bit jarring because obviously not everyone's going to believe everything so it just came across as a bit generic it doesn't go into a lot of detail about any one thing if that makes sense so then you get into the sabbat pages and this is where i had a major falling out with the book i made it to page 100 just thinking oh okay so this is quite interesting and maybe i don't agree with everything that's written in here but i didn't expect to because it's not really aimed at me it's aimed at people who are goths and interested in goth subculture and who understand it better than i do uh, but this was i felt like i was more on home ground because it was to do with um more wiccan things like the the sabbats first of all she breaks them down into major and minor sabbats which i'm not really keen on because i mean the whole point of the wheel of the year it's sort of like the round table nothing is really more important than anything else so um i was a bit confused about uh, i always do when uh, this isn't the only book that does it but like when the sabbats are delineated into oh these are the major ones and these are the minor ones and i'm like surely they're all major they're like on the wheel of the year they're all important it confused me a little bit because uh Imolk, which is the uh sabbat taking place sort of february uh first and second is referred to as Candlemas, which is its christian name uh it does say that it's also known as Imolk, but they've chosen to refer to it as Candlemas, which is weird and then they've given a um a ritual that you can do which is actually a transylvanian Candlemas ritual but then on page 102, I was sort of still reeling from, wait a minute, I thought it was mainly known as Imok for uh, Wiccans, when I landed on Beltane. And the description of Beltane was quite general and not very specific. But there was a bit at the end which was like, whoa, what the fuck? I mean, just listen, because I'm going to read it to you, obviously. So it says, Beltane is the sexiest high holiday for witches, and it is anticipated all year. Look forward to having a joyful spree every May. Witchy ones celebrate Beltane on the very last eve of April, and it is traditional for the festivities to go on all night. This is a holiday for feasting, dancing, laughter, and lots of lovemaking. May Day, when the sun returns, is when revellers erect a beribboned maypole and dance around in gay garb, followed by pagan picnicking and sexy siestas. Another bonus of Beltane is that this is the one day in the year when it is officially okay to enjoy sex outside of your existing relationship. This is the day we look the other way. So I agree with most of the first part of that. You know, Beltane is about fertility. That's what the Maypole is about. Weirdly, I went to a Christian primary school and every year around that time we would 
do maypole dancing and then uh, we would practice and we would perform at the village fete every year which is quite funny when I sort of got into paganism and I was looking back on that and I was like huh I danced around a, a giant dick to some cause music when I was five um so I get that and the whole thing about it and you know people used to go off and create like bowers in the woods with flowers and they would take their beloved to them to like have sex basically and to bring forth like new love and life and welcome in the spring so I get that and I get most of what she's saying there to do with like fertility and joy and sensuality which is sort of what it's all about what I don't agree with is that this is the one day in the year when it's officially okay to enjoy sex outside of your in, uh, of your existing relationship this is the day we look the other way that was kind of a bomb to be hit with. I was like, what the fuck? Because no, no, it's not. I've never heard this in any other book. I've never heard this at any other time in my life. You know, there is such a thing as like, obviously, consensual polyamory. And you can go out and definitely do something like that on Beltane if you are that way inclined. But it's not a day when Wiccan law says like, yeah, it's fine. You know, you can't get mad. It's not cheating. It's Beltane. What happens on May Day stays on May Day. It just struck me as completely bizarre and very strange. And I was just like, why has this been included? Um, I would definitely not agree with this uh, as a pagan. I know a lot of other people who wouldn't be happy to say like, oh, yeah, today's cheating day. It's fine. You know, there's a difference between saying that you can go out and sleep with, you know, whoever you want to find a new partner. And it doesn't have to be like sex after marriage, which is a very Christian thing. But at the same time, it's not like, oh, hey, honey, I'm just going to go out to the Sabbath ritual tonight and uh, I may be back tomorrow morning because I'm just going to find a random and get laid. It, it, it just struck me as very peculiar, to say the least. And from that point on, I was viewing everything in the book with an even larger pinch of salt. Then we got on to Yule. Yule, which is classified in this book as one of the minor Sabbaths, along with Ostera, Letha, um, Mabon or Mabon. And uh, when she writes about Yule on page 110, she says, Yule rules, but Christmas itself is very un-goth, with the exception of Tim Burton's visionary film, The Nightmare Before Christmas. All those bright twinkling lights, garishly coloured packages and dreadful thematic sweaters are the antithesis of goth sensibility. How can buying gifts of people you don't even talk to most of the year, your family maybe, be spiritual? In early tribal times, Goths stoically went through the winter seasons, making sure there was enough food for everyone and hunkering down against the bitter frozen cold. How can a goddess-fearing Goth get through the dark time of the year while maintaining dignity? The following are some suggestions from the world's wisdom traditions. And basically what they go on to say is that you can celebrate the new year on December the 31st. And then it gives some ideas for celebrating that. Now, the issue I take with that is that it says like, Oh, Yule is great, but ugh, Christmas, how very ungoth. But then it doesn't say, like, oh, here's how we celebrate Yule. Because Yule is not Christmas. A lot of the symbolism is the same, because it was stolen. But um, Yule is very much, it's about, like, talking decorations-wise, you have your Yule log, you're bringing in your evergreens to decorate, so your holly, your mistletoe, ivy, and those are very Christmassy plants now. You're lighting the candles of the Yule log and kind of reminding yourself of the bale fire at Beltane. And it's kind of like 
looking forward to the brighter half of the year it's also the winter solstice so this is the time of year when the holly king the oak king battle and the holly king dies and the oak king reigns again and we start to see life coming back and spring coming essentially i don't get how that would not be goth i mean we talked about earlier in the book the winter soul um which always makes me think of the winter soldier which is very goth but not very wiccan um but so you've got like this is the winter ritual it is literally the winter solstice and a lot of the stuff to do with it and to do with decorating for it especially is to do with things that she says in the book are quite goth plants ivy for example is one of the symbols that she gives for your gothic altar um also there's a battle to the death i, I fail to see how that's not goth um and it's just it, it struck me as very weird that yule was being equated with with christmas because they're not the same thing and it doesn't really say anything about how you celebrate yule it just says at the end it talks about hogmanay various gods that are associated with the solstice uh, and then it says at, right at the end the old tradition was to have a vigil and a bonfire from dusk till dawn to make sure the sun does indeed rise again on this longest night of the entire year it's the longest night how is the longest night not the most goth thing you've ever heard of i was just like what i don't even understand uh, so after this i kind of skimmed for a bit uh, but it gives um a breakdown of different mythological characters um so we go kind of from valkyries and odin through to more germanic goddesses and then nymphs and things from various places around england like and then on to russia so it's a it's a very mixed law that it's giving there um and then we get to goth naming ceremony which i had issues with for two reasons one it's basically stolen quite a lot of native american things which we all know i am not a fan of i mean you can take on a new name but i think that should have been equated with craft names whereas what she actually says on page 132 is uh, a description of uh, coming of age rituals and when names are given to people in native american tribes because they've gone through like a coming of age and they've become adults um then the supplies that you need for the goth naming ceremony are drums a pipe with mild tobacco fire face paint feathers leather and beads for a headdress and gifts of wisdom for the new goth so it goes through some steps of what you do and the naming and then step five is the tribe should decorate the celebrant with the paint and feathers leather and beads and co-create a headdress making it as magnificent as possible this headdress is the insignia of newfound adulthood and then step six drum and sing on this new moon night as an important new member of the tribe has just come into being i don't really see what that has to do with even my limited understanding of goth culture uh, a headdress made of feathers and beads is definitely a native american thing i don't see images of goths anywhere wearing headdresses made of feathers and leather and beads if you were going to give them something it might be like a necklace or a, maybe a charm bracelet or something that would have more gothic symbols on it so things like i know bats spiders um arcane symbols etc etc but the symbols that they've definitely chosen for this rite that they've described in the book are very native american and it's just very um derivative and basically cultural appropriation and i'm not a fan 
What did entertain me greatly, however, was the uh, goth name generator on page 135, which says to roll two dice four times. So you numbers from one to twelve. Um, or you could roll, I guess, one twelve-sided dice if you have those, because you are a nerd. Um, and then there's like a gothic name generator, female and a male one as well. And um, I decided to amuse myself by getting my parents to pick random numbers. And they also did the dog, which I found quite funny. So my dog was Lord Spider, Castigator of Innocence, um, which I found absolutely hysterical um when i did mine i came out as princess melora keeper of virgins i don't know where i'm keeping them but i mean i've heard some noises from the back of the wardrobe which i might check out later uh, my dad was father sebastian flayer of succubi and my mum came out as where is she oh uh, mistress batty enchantress of ravens so those are some of the wonderful names that you could give yourself with that gothic name generator uh, they kind of reminded me of those like craft name generator things where you come out as like pixie moon sparkle farts and you're like yes this is the name that i have chosen in service of my gods so um, i had a little bit of a chuckle over that and that was quite entertaining uh, then chapter eight comes along supernatural sex romantic rituals and make out magic and there's a lot of stuff about um making love potions lovers tea various different things what i found actually quite good at this point in the book i have to say there is a recipe given for orgasmic oil uh, which was apparently taught to the author by a professional in inverted quote marks i assume they mean a prostitute because they later mentioned clients which i found quite weird because the the base of the oil is obviously oil which isn't really compatible with latex condoms loyal uh, oil will like corrode latex i don't know if that's the proper term but like it does something iffy to it and you shouldn't use the two in conjunction and at the end it says this is not for safe sex if you're using a latex condom which is quite responsible and i applaud the author for for including that thought at the end but then i was like wait a minute so this is being used by someone who is like a professional sex worker then shouldn't they be using something that they can use with a condom also the ingredients that go into it are some spices and they're not like essential oils of the spices they are literal clove cinnamon and ginger and i don't really know about putting like ground ginger and stuff like inside places because i feel like that's going to be difficult to remove and you're just on a hiding for a yeast infection is what i think but having not used it i just don't know then there's some stuff about body modification there's some stuff about piercings tattoos various other stuff and then a bit on animal sacrifice which basically says that some pagans do practice animal sacrifice but obviously you can make do with like vegan sacrifices of wine and beer and things like that then a whole section of goth astrology i don't really get goth astrology i have to say because surely whether you're a goth or not the stars are still the same and the beginning of the the section gave me no clue as to what it was because it says goth astrology is the same set of stars set in a much darker sky Actually, the planets are all identical, as are the birth dates and signs. But as a practising astrologer, I noticed in Gotham that each placement in the zodiac has a slightly different permutation. So I guess this is sort of like the gothic face of the various signs. And uh, I obviously looked myself up because, I mean, that's what you do in things like this. And I'm a Taurus. And it says for Taurus that my gothic roles are Wiccan witch or gothic gardener. 
and that the fixed sign, the fixed earth sign of Taurus, represented as the mighty bull, will not tolerate lies, dishonor, or false pledges. Characterized as the wielding earth goddess of all dark forces, the healing Taurus will be seen gathering wild herbs to brew a tea, to brew a wicked tea, so it is best to be on her good side. Lovely in dark greens and maroons, the gothic Taurus can honor her earth sign with vibrant green hair and pointy toed shoes. While I do admit that I do not tolerate lies and that I indeed do look lovely in dark greens and maroons, like fuck am I dyeing my hair bright green and pointy toed shoes can fuck right off because I have the hammer toes of my father. So um, I don't really get, um, I mean I, th I view characteristics in star signs as being the main point of having them. I don't think it's things like, oh if you're a Libra you should wear a pair of fucking scales on your head. It's, it's just very strange and like it's sort of things like you know, Gemini should wear purple underwear. And you're like, but why? Surely, um, I mean, I can don't really see that I'm kind of a Taurian personality. And I definitely see it in people that I know and knowing their star signs. And yeah, it's very obvious, you know, who is the Capricorn. But I don't really understand how those things would cross into, you know, your roles as a pagan and, you know, your general clothing and accessories. I'd be especially pissed off if I was a Cancer because their gothic roles are gothic interior decorator and martyr. It's like, okay, great. Just, just go out and die for a cause, Cancer. That's all you're good for. There's a section then, uh, chapter 11, all about divination. And that's mostly to do with uh, tarot. There's a section where you can use tarot by rolling dice, which I thought was quite clever, uh, especially if you're not out at home. You could have dice and just roll them you wouldn't have to have the cards and it gives like numbers um only for the major arcana not the minor arcana but you could definitely um use that then on using casting stones and various other items and by this point i was sort of getting to the end of the book and i was like oh, okay this has been quite interesting um and then it starts talking about absinthe and the ritual use of absinthe which um you can obviously still buy absinthe now it's just like insanely alcoholic green juice but you can also still buy like authentic absinthe which has wormwood and various herbs and hallucinogens and whatever in it it's sort of up in the air at the moment as to whether it is actually hallucinogenic or if it's just sort of mildly stimulating in a neurotoxin type way um but then a recipe is given for making your own absinthe wine uh, which involves uh, port and then you add some things to it, various herbs and two teaspoons of dried wormwood. Um, this is another thing that I had to Google because I was like, I swear that wormwood is poisonous. The long answer is it's actually kind of OK to have wormwood. Wormwood oil specifically is used in cosmetics and stuff. And you can still buy absinthe, which has wormwood in it. And this is a quote from WebMD. Um, it is still allowed in European Union countries as long as the Thujone, um, I know I'm not saying that right, but it's T-H-U-J-O-N-E, content is less than 35 milligrams per kilogram. And it, that Thujone is a potentially poisonous chemical found in wormwood and that distilling it in alcohol increases its concentration. The side effects of wormwood poisoning are... Uh, when taken by mouth, it can cause seizures, muscle breakdown, kidney failure, restlessness, difficulty sleeping, nightmares, vomiting, stomach cramps, dizziness, tremors, changes in heart rate, urine retention, thirst, numbness of arms and legs, paralysis and death. Um, and when used on the skin, it can cause severe skin redness and burning. 
so I find it a bit odd that in the book it says, oh yeah, you can totally make this with dried wormwood. And previously with the orgasm oil, it was like, oh, don't use this with a latex condom because oil and that will not go well. But with this, it's like, sure, make your own drink with this potentially quite dangerous herb in it and they might have done some research they might have decided oh the amount of wormwood that you're using to make this is perfectly safe but in sourcing that wormwood i mean you don't know that you're getting it from uh, a reputable supplier it could have more or less of this chemical in it that might prove harmful for you and there's nothing to stop you you know accidentally mismeasuring or leaving this to brew for too long and accidentally poisoning yourself so I did think it was maybe a little bit irresponsible to not have a warning of any kind on it it just says underneath the recipe mix and enjoy it doesn't say like make sure you make sure you only put these specific measurements in it and make sure you only make it with this ratio and I I was just like okay I feel like this is a little bit um irresponsible there was one other thing that caused a great deal of confusion I mainly put this blame on myself because I must have not been paying proper attention um (laughs) but um in the stone section they, they give reference to the French literary legend Voltaire author of Candide uh, and he's connected to uh, a story about Jade uh, in that section and then uh, like I think two other points I I can't find the first one but I did find the second Uh, the second is in the section about making your own candelabra on page 222 Uh, and I was reading step three uh, which is basically you've spray painted some bottles black and then it says you can stop here but it is even better to refine your design with your own art or stickers you particularly love, or even decoupage or spray-glued photos evocative of your mood and magic. Voltaire recommends the Bandelabra, featuring photos, stickers, lyrics, or an image representing your favourite band. And then I had to stop there and was like, Voltaire lived fucking years, decades, hundreds of years ago. Why the fuck would he coin the phrase Bandelabra? Like, he died in the 1700s. I was just like, what the fuck? And then it turns out, and I only found this out because I had Googled it, that there is someone called Aurelia Voltaire, who goes by the mononym Voltaire. I'm looking at his Wikipedia page because that's how I found him. And he's apparently a goth musician. I did not know this. But I feel like if that's the Voltaire you're referring to, you should definitely use their full name, Aurelio Voltaire. Because one, you've already referred to Voltaire as in what people will think of when they hear the word Voltaire, as in the writer, French writer. Um... And then you can't just say, oh, yeah, Voltaire. He likes to put Green Day stickers on candelabras. And I was just like, wait, what? Legit confused out of my tiny little mind. I was just <laughs> I was just like, wait a minute. There must be some other guy called Voltaire, but I don't know who that is. And maybe if you are into goth uh, subculture already and you like listen to goth music, then you would be aware of the second Voltaire. But I was fucking not. And it confused me no end. So there's a lot of things that I've said about the book. Um, I didn't agree with perhaps quite a lot of what it was saying and some of the things it was saying about Wicca and some of the things, like my main issue with it, were that it was making claims that I just couldn't verify or it was making statements about things that actually happened that when I looked them up, I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right at all. Like the stuff about Nicolas Cage, um, the witch killing in or attempted witch killing in 2005. There's some stuff in here which 
is quite good that I think would maybe lend a little bit of kind of gothic pizzazz to your practice if you were interested in that sort of thing. But I think if you are a goth, that's like a subculture that must permeate quite a lot of aspects of your life from what you wear, what you listen to, what you like to watch on television. There's probably a lot of areas in which being a goth affects you and just and in that you've probably chosen to go into the subculture because you quite like a lot of things associated with it and it follows on from that that because it's such a big part of you and your life it will automatically be part of your practice already so for example i really like um the kind of aesthetic of like early charmed which is of east end that kind of new england herbs hanging from the ceiling china teacups silver candelabra old wooden dresses like that's the aesthetic that i have and so for a lot of my magical tools look like things that you would find from those eras um there are a lot of like vintage and antique things that i've picked up online or just by going to like car boot sales which is where i get quite a lot of my stuff and if you were already interested in gothic stuff you know you might have found a gothic style goblet or a candelabra of your own black ornate altar cloths various things because if it's a part of you it's automatically going to be a part in how you express your interest in wicca and paganism it's i don't think you really need a book to tell you to do that so i'm sort of struggling to see who this book is for because this is a very basic view of how you can involve that in your practice so basically it says like oh the chalice is an important tool to have in wicca it represents this that and the other if you're a goth you might buy one of the ones from nemesis now that has fucking skulls on it and it's like well duh because that's going to be the kind of thing that you're attracted to um and I do think that there are other maybe more interesting books about uh, darker magical practice, nocturnal witchcraft and things like that. Um, so I'm struggling to see why this is a book that exists. Having said that, it does have some quite good reviews online. Clearly, some people have found it helpful and interesting. So if it sounds like the kind of thing that would appeal to you, then do give it a read. I'm sure there's lots you could get out of it. As I said at the beginning, it's not really a book that i thought would appeal to me in any great sense but i read it because i was sort of vaguely interested in goth culture but i feel like the book hasn't given me much more of an understanding of that than i had at the start which is to say not much at all but i think if you're looking for a book that maybe approaches wicker 101 from a slant which will be more interesting to you like if you haven't really learned a lot about wicca uh, and you wanted to kind of go into it with a kind of less fluff fluffy love and light aspect and more of a kind of gothic slant then this might be an interesting book for you but at the same time read other things as well because i think some of the information in it is just a teeny bit wonky i hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember you can get in touch on twitter which is at witchfix uh, and by email which is witchfixpodcast at gmail.com and do let me know if there are any other books about gothic wicca or gothic spiritual practice that you think i might find more interesting and informative because i'm definitely still interested in the subject uh let me know if you own any of these books and you have any recommendations for me and in the meantime i will see you in the next episode bye